Welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast, friends, and to part two of the opening session from our Restoration of the Heart Conference. Back in March, Dan Allender and I held a two-day conference here in Colorado Springs where we basically laid out our combined years of experience working with people to kind of get to the essence of what we think is essential for the restoration of human hearts and lives. And here in this podcast this week, we're sharing part two of the opening session. There are two camps out there in the realm of soul care, in the realm of the restoration of human beings and their inner world, at least. There is the universe that makes up the the therapeutic um, profession and community. And I mean, just volumes of research and phenomenal, phenomenal resources. And to be honest, some of the most valiant individuals in the world just fighting every day, one-on-one for single hearts and lives, marriages, um, the world of the counseling community, um, that, that world. And, and then you have another universe that almost lives in a separate solar you know, system than you know, different universes than this one. And, and in this universe is some phenomenal people who have delved into the realm of um, inner healing and, and, and what um, healing prayer and those types of resources, um, understanding how darkness works and how you set souls free from it. And, and for too long, these communities have not talked to each other and have kind of viewed each other, frankly, with a little suspicion. And I know some very dear wonderful Christian therapists, counselors, psychologists who are battling for not only other people's souls, but frankly for their own, with one tool in their toolbox. They have the, they have the skills of the therapeutic community. They have counseling. They have sort of traditional talk therapy and, and, and the things that cluster around that. But like I want to say, gang, like... Y- like this world over here has a lot to offer you. And I know some dear personal friends who operate in the realm of sort of healing, deliverance type of ministry care, and they got a lot to learn from this community over here. The analogy is very, very, very much like the almost um, uh, civil war, the, the separate, the North and the South of the medical community and the holistic care community for the human body, right? I mean, like, the, you know, the medical community in the West you know, has achieved some phenomenally brilliant things. The research that's been done, the understanding of the human body, understanding of the human brain. It, you know, there's a wealth of information here. And, and frankly, you know, if, if you need, like, stitches this afternoon, you would go to a hospital, okay? Like, go get that taken care of. Yeah, there are, there are resources over here. But then you have, you have the holistic care community, and, um, you know, from naturopaths to acupuncture to the use of essential oils and, you know, sort of all of that. And I want to say, hey, like, if you care about your health, 
Like, you want to avoid the need for massive medical intervention? Like, live over here. Like, listen to what these people have to say to you. But those two groups don't talk to each other much. And there's, there's kind of a sort of a swaggering hostility between the two, you know? It's very much like that. And I want to go, oh, friends, like, like a little bit of humility will get you a long ways. Like to, to be willing to learn. Both camps desperately need one another. The, the expression, um, <laughs> give a boy a hammer and the whole world looks like a nail. <laughs> right? Give a boy a hammer and everything needs pounding. You know, right? Okay, so like I'm telling you, I'm t- I'm, I am speaking to you, my dear friends. Okay, you learn a little something, right? You get a couple tools that work for you. And, you know, maybe you found like some discipleship things that have really helped you or you've learned like the power of self-discipline or, you know, you have found the healing power of, of therapy and, and, and what the counseling world has to offer. And then we lock on to that. And then everything, everything's that. Everything's that. Oh, well, you just haven't processed, you know, you just haven't processed that enough. We go, well, sometimes. Not all the time. That's not the answer all the time. Right? Well, you just need more discipline. If you had more discipline in your life, let me tell you the ways in which discipline has changed. You, know, you go, well, sometimes, actually. Sometimes. That's very helpful. Not all the time. Okay? Um, take, for example, one of the most valiant works going on in the world today is the sacrificial, often hidden efforts of men and women who are rescuing other men and women and children out of human trafficking, and particularly out of sexual trafficking and, and the global sex industry. Um, but the tragedy is this. Do you know that a majority of those people rescued go back? of their own choosing? And you go, how can that possibly, why? I'll tell you why. Because if you do not address the brokenness, the, the literal shattering of the human soul that takes place in that, And if you do not address the strongholds of darkness that seize the opportunity of that brokenness, you won't help them. You won't help them. Both communities need each other. The therapeutic community needs the inner healing community, and the inner healing deliverance community needs the therapeutic community. And what we're hoping to do here is to bring a kind of convergence of what we've learned, experienced, what we've shared um, personally um, with one another. And I think I just want to say, you come to a conference not to be reinforced in what you already know, right? I mean, you can stay home with yourself and get that, right? Like, you come to a conference because you're hoping to learn something new, right? Like, you're here because you're hoping you know, to add some more tools to your toolbox, to increase your appreciation of of how God operates in the world and particularly in the human soul. And what a wonderful segue into telling our stories, into telling a little bit. This is where it gets really good. 
let's, let's, tell, let's tell some stories. Well, the question of, I, I, just think how many stories are in this room and what brought you uh, to be here? Uh, and, and really, that's kind of the question of what brought me to be sitting on this stage with you. Let them have it. Well, I ended college. Uh, primarily college for me was uh, I ran a small business. Uh, <laughs> you have friends in the audience who already know where this story is headed. Well, I, I was involved in what could be called illicit pharmaceutical sales. Uh, and I accidentally graduated from college. Um, And my best friend at that time said to me, uh, you know, what are you going to do when we graduate? And I wasn't going on in that trade, uh, so I thought I'd go to law school because it seemed to be a really close parallel to what I'd been doing. <laughs> and he informed me that I, I couldn't because I hadn't taken my LSATs. Uh, and so knowing that I couldn't get in that year, he said, why don't you go to seminary with me? And I didn't want to get a job, and certainly seminary seemed... A reasonable choice. Uh, so we got an application, and there were all sorts of questions that were very confusing. I did the demographic material pretty well, name, address, but when it got to the first question of, tell us about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it was like, what are they asking? And Trimper would go ahead and tell me what they were asking, and I just said to him, well, why don't you just write that down? So we ended up filling out the whole application with his words, sent it in with my signature, and he was accepted uh, to the seminary uh, for a second time under my name, and we went. Um, not likely the road of maturity here, but uh, the first day of being able to like sign up for classes, uh, they told me that I was going to take Greek and Hebrew along with a number of other classes. Well, I was only going to be there for one year, ostensibly only for the purpose of studying God, uh, and I informed the registrar that that wasn't really in my interest. Uh, and she said, well, you have to take Greek and Hebrew. So I thought a little clarification would help. So I said, look, I, I just want you to know I'm only here for a year, planning to go to law school, um, I, but I, I can promise, 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 I will never be a missionary in Greece or Israel. <laughs> And she looked at me the way that my dog used to, just that. <laughs> And she said, well, the original autographs of the Bible are written in Greek and Hebrew. Well, I'd never heard the word autograph other than you know, signature of a celebrity, but I kind of knew that she was saying that the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. Well, My best friend had given me a Bible right before we went to seminary, so I informed her, mine uh, is in English. <laughs> well, let's just say that seminary was probably as disruptive for me uh, as it was for them. Uh, But I learned a lot, uh, and I came to a view, uh, this is what the seminary taught, a view on secessionism, which is a view that the Bible, when it was completed canonically, there is no longer a need for sort of those wild, crazy events that are described in the book of Acts. No longer do we need miracles, no longer does God speak directly, but only through the Bible, 
And whether that was true or not, I didn't really have a lot of venture into the supernatural uh, other than hallucinogens. And so I, I wasn't really fond of having a God who would interact with me directly over matters. So that view seemed actually quite workable and worked quite well for many decades, uh, up until about early 2000s, uh, a school that I was part of starting in Seattle uh, was going through havoc, chaos, affairs, firings. And I was the president, and I was in the middle of drowning in a world in which I had no ability with the categories that I had available to me to deal with the wounding and the brokenness, not only in others, but in my own heart. And around that season, we began fishing. And I can recall after a number of years, because a lot of our conversations were on listening to God. And I must admit that I'm, I'm, I'm a bright man. Yes, you are. Somewhat verbal. Very. And at my worst, quite cynical and acerbic. All I can say is that as John would hear Jesus about where we would fish, there's just too many points where I'm going, really, Jesus told us to fish here. Uh, this is not a good spot. There was one time where you said, Jesus has told me uh, that you're going to catch a really fine fish here. And I'm going, that's great. I love fishing and I love catching, but this is a really bad spot. And you walked away. And as you were walking away, instead of just like looking at me face to face, you said, it'll be on your first cast, Jesus said. (laughs) And I'm going, well, that's pretty out there. So I put the fly out and it's floating back and I'm doing as well as I can. I'm not trying to screw up, but I can see the water and there are no fish no fish whatsoever. Uh, It's probably seven feet from me. I'm about to pull my line up and the fish hit and it was fast and hard. I didn't even need to set the hook. Just one of those moments where you go, accidents happen? (laughs) Strange things can occur and maybe you're just a freaking intuitive, but nonetheless... Just moments where you're going, okay, what if? I'm not going to say God speaks, but what if he does? And I'm not open to knowing where to fish when I'm alone. (laughs) So our conversations continued. Uh, There were just other moments, but uh, I remember one of those moments uh, on the side of a mountain glorious context, looking out at an alpine lake. We were eating lunch. And I had told you a number of stories uh, about fishing that summer uh, where I got uh, sort of an encounter with a bear that uh, almost ate me. Um, uh, Two other experiences on that trip where I got into water that was fairly foolish to enter, but I figured no one had fished those spots uh, and nearly drowned. Uh, so there were a couple stories along those lines. And John at one point said to me, um, you have a lot of near-death stories. And it was 
irrefutable, but at one level, and well, not that many. Uh, and then as a dear friend who holds memory on your behalf, <laughs> he began to articulate other stories. And at some level, uh, I finally went, all right, so yes, I somewhat have a lot of stories of risk uh, and foolishness. And then the simple phrase was, Dan, you seem to have a relationship with death. And I remember the moment those words were spoken, something in me looked at you in a look like, I will take you out. No further. <laughs> no, no further. You shall not pass. Right. Uh, and I, I cannot recall the exact process, but because I am a good therapist and I'm a really good observer of others, I started watching what you were doing with me and I saw where you were going and something in my heart didn't want to stop, even though there was that, don't go there. Uh, and eventually what he asked was, what is your relationship with death? And the moment he asked that question, wasn't new memories, but I had never put it into that context. Uh, I, I told him about my father and my mother who were in the middle of, of a severe series of affairs. Uh, they had divided. Uh, they had come back together again. Uh, and I was about age four. And they decided to get back together, take a trip to Florida from Ohio. And they were on this trip when a car pulled out in front of them. Uh, and my father died DOA. Uh, my mother was thrown through the windshield and was in the hospital for three months. That's the story. And John looked at me and said, and where were you? And no one had asked that simple question. As we almost all do, we hear stories without sufficient wisdom for how to approach them. You don't approach with mere curiosity you approach with a sense of taking your shoes off when you walk into the stories of heartache and brokenness. So if you do not know what it is to have someone make a holy entry into your suffering, I promise you will not know how to bring your own broken heart but restoring heart into the lives of others. And John did. Uh, and I said, well, I was in the car and I was thrown into the front seat and then he asked, and where were your parents? I said, well, I walked by my mother, sat with her, and the image was, uh, she was like a crumpled doll. And then my father was about 10 feet away, uh, and he was partially submerged uh, in a small stream. And I sat by my father's body, watching this rippling water above him that was liquid and beautiful and white and it passed through his body and became dark and red and still. And so as I'm describing this event, I don't have a clue what's about to happen. But John began to ask about that boy and he named that there was a very defiant 16, 17-year-old boy 
who wanted to make sure no one got too close to my heart. And as he invited me to name the look that was there, that was a look of, you will die if you walk into this. Uh, He asked a very simple question, and that is, do you have uh, an alliance, an agreement with defiance? I mean, is that what you have lived a lot of your life with? And you knew me, and you knew the answer, and I knew the answer, and that style of relating of, if you push me, I will hit you back. Uh, I will not let harm come without a fight. So the defiance had to be named, uh, and we began, and he asked me, he asked a very simple question, that is, do you actually believe in a spirit realm? Yeah, of course I do. And do you believe there could be spirits related to the seduction of your heart to become defiant so that no portion of your heart can ever be harmed again? And the answer is, of course. Well, do you want to allow those spirits to continue to be part of your world, inhabit your heart in some form? And it's like, are you kidding I want foul things within me? No. Uh, And the question that he then asked is, are you willing to let your own innocent heart desire, care for that four-year-old boy? Because that boy has not been cared for. You've not cared for him. You've allowed no one else to care for him. But we can't get to him until we approach that 17-year-old defiant kid who will make his way through this world. And that's what we did. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Uh, The labor and wisdom involved in getting to that spot, the work of God to get to that spot. Um, It was a gift beyond words. Uh, And I prayed to be released, to cut off uh, that agreement. Um, And can I say that remarkable things happened in that moment? Probably not. More along the lines of, yeah, I don't like that defiance. But as we move closer to that four-year-old boy, um, I felt terrified, um, alone. Uh, Death was all around me. And that question of, do you want to continue in some collaboration, some intimacy? A, A kind of, do you want to be bound into death? Now, here you need to hear fairly well. Part of me was saying, my ability to look death in the face and to say, I don't give a damn. I really don't care if I live or if I die, has actually given me over many moments with guns to my head or starting a graduate school, actually gave me a lot of power, or so it appeared, to be able to do things that other people don't seem to have the ability to do. And so the question of, are you really wanting? I I mean, the simple question is, do you really want to be healed? And I I can only tell you, of course, the part of me wants to rage and say, of course. But the fact is, there's another part that was saying, hell no. I don't want to give that kind of power up. I hope I don't die. But the lack of fear of death has enabled me to do a whole lot in this world What's going to be there if I give that up? And that core question of, what will I be if I give that up?
So the process for me as to why I'm here is that my dear friend had enough courage and wisdom, enough tenacity and playfulness to continue over many years to invite me not only to my heart, but also to the nature of cosmology, to the world, to the world seen and the world unseen. And the question is, a therapist, a PhD psychologist, who I think did good work with people without bringing anything of the supernatural indirectly, I'm beginning to ask, why would I want to limit myself, even if it causes people in my field to go, you're whacked? Uh, or, or frankly, uh, because so many people who do this kind of work do to me seem whacked. And, and I, <laughs> I'm crazy in my own way. I don't want to be crazy in their way. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But I can also say just in summary, I love you and I'm so grateful. So grateful for actually coming to believe there's an unseen world. Oh, huge. It was a beautiful healing day. And we found that little boy. We found that little boy. Um, And more on that this weekend, friends. Much, much more on that. Uh, My story. Um, I remember sitting in Dan's class... I think I was 35 when I went through the program. Um, and I was, sitting, I was sitting in your class one day, and you made a statement. You said, you're talking about the therapeutic process, you're talking about counseling, talking about being Christian counselors, bringing some sense of, of God into all this. And, and you said, um, you must assume that God is more at work than you are. And I wanted to laugh I wanted to laugh out loud. I wanted to raise my hand and say, that is the one thing none of us assume. We don't. We are all practical agnostics. Whatever our creedal statements may be, we, we do not assume that God is more at work than we are, particularly in the moment, particularly when you are sitting with that suffering person, right? And all that stuff's going on and you're, it feels up to you. It feels up to you, right? It feels up to you. Whichever universe you live in, it feels up to you. I mean, there's just this pressure to come through, this heart to come through, and, and just that. Um, you must assume that God is more at work than you are. It really haunted me for a long time. And so I graduated um, from the program, uh, like many of you sitting here, uh, fellow alum, and uh, went off and uh, started, you know, joined a private practice and uh, began seeing clients. And what happened was I, I quickly began to encounter situations that traditional talk therapy was um, impotent to address. Um, there, there were people either who, the trauma of which had so shattered their being that talking our, our way through this was, was not um, going to help. It, it was going to get us to those places, and you need to get to those places. So that was helpful. Um, but there was, I just began to wonder about that. And then I, 
um, man, we started to encounter some other clients who, because of their story and because of things in their lives, um, had serious, serious darkness present. You could just feel the darkness enter the room. And, and those tools that I had in my toolbox were not going to deal with that either. So um, a friend of mine, I love I just the circuitous playfulness of God. A friend of mine was a PhD student at the time under Dallas Willard. And so we began to get some conversations. Um, and I remember a conversation in which he asked Dallas, I was very surprised. Uh, Dallas Willard was the um, president, he was a chair of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Southern California. Um, in the 20th century, he was considered one of the most um, intelligent men, certainly in the United States, if not in the world. This is a very, very bright guy who loves God. Lo- he's with God now. Boy, does he love him. Um, and, uh, and so the context of the conversation was our surprise at hearing that at that time in his life, Dallas Willard, PhD of philosophy at the University of Southern California, uh, uh, who wrote his dissertation on Husserl's epistemology, um, was going to a vineyard church. And we asked why. It just kind of seemed a little incongruous, if you sort of get my meaning. And, um, and, and Dallas said, well, he said, those people know how to pray. And I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Um, so my young, my, my friend who was a young PhD student um, had asked Dallas, what should I read? What, is the, what should I read? And uh, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to give him some phenomenal book on epistemology or phenomenology or, you know, he's going to like answer all the deep truths of the human race. The book that Dallas gave him was a, it's a very simple little paperback book that you have to go to used bookstores now to find. And it, it's, it's called The Deeper Experience of Famous Christians. So I went out and I bought that book, right? I mean, you can, you can believe I bought that book, you know? And, and I'm looking through it and it's like, here's this story about John Wesley and sort of his deeper experience with God. And here, I'm going through Mueller and his deeper experience with God. And, and I'm going, what? Like, you're kidding. Like, the, one of the smartest men in the world thinks that this is what we ought to be reading. Um, so I changed directions a little bit. Um, having studied in the therapeutic world and benefited from it immensely, I began to explore the kingdom of God. I, I, I wanted to know more of what was available for the healing of humanity and for people's individual wounds and brokenness. What is available to us um, by, by way of kind of this other realm of resources and um, through what Christ has done for us. And um, to tell you my lakeside story, so um, I had gone backpacking by myself and I was trying to cross from one valley into another over this ridge line that a ranger had actually told me about. I had talked to him and he said, yeah, there is kind of a, it's an unmarked trail, but you can get from this basin into that basin if you need to look for this kind of faint trail, and I didn't find it, and I, I got into a situation where I was um, 
almost killed. Uh, I was on the edge of a cliff, and it was hairy. It was really hairy. And so I had to climb back up and actually go back down to the camp that I had left that morning and got back to camp, and I was, um, I was scared. I was confused. I was like, God, like, what was that about? And, and um, suddenly I was aware of this very young place in me um, and that was truly the part that was frightened by that. And I was also aware of the presence of Jesus. Um, and this young boy in me says, I can hear him, I can hear him internally, I can hear him in my heart, um, to Jesus, he always does that to me. Meaning older me always puts younger me in those situations. And I just heard the voice of Jesus say, you do, you know. I felt so busted. I felt like, oh man, I have been so found out. All of that independent survival drivenness thing, all of that, I will conquer, do it. Um, And it ended up being this incredibly intimate, incredibly intimate experience um, with the presence of Jesus and the ability that he has to come for the broken and traumatized places in us and bring his love and his ministry there, and um, oh my goodness, the stories that we could tell, the stories that we could tell, having begun to reconcile sort of these two worlds and learning what each one has to say to the other. Um, more on that as we go along, but I'm, we've got about five minutes left, and I think, I think we wanted to kind of give an invitation here for them to consider their own stories as we go through this. Let's just say that if all you do uh, over our span of time together, and again, what a privilege, incredible privilege to have you here. Um, But if all all you do is take notes, uh, do some pondering, a little bit of conversation at lunch, uh, we really are saying again, we believe healing is possible and, and not just like a year from now. Uh, healing's actually possible over the next day or two. You, you never know. You never know when you turn a corner uh, if God will be there. But why wouldn't we presume that he speaks uh, and that he wishes to work in all of our lives? And if you are willing to take your story, your one unique story, your life, seriously, then one of the things we're asking you to do is would you start thinking about what story in your past, bears clear woundedness. It could be when you were five, could have been last week. Um, but if possible, the younger the story, the more power it generally has. So would you open the possibility of asking God, what story would you want, the one story that you would want me to engage while I'm here over these two days? Just one story. Story of wounding, story of brokenness, where you know something happened in that experience that had a deep, resounding impact in your heart. And now, as radical as it might sound, would you actually write about it? Um, At break, uh, at lunch, uh, tonight, after we finish, would you mind writing somewhere between 600 
I mean, it's not many words. 600 to 1,000 words. A story. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in another hour. But stories have context. So what was the context? People are part of the story. Who are the characters? What dialogue happened? Who were you in the middle of that? Would you write the story as if it's fiction? Don't just talk about, oh, I was there, but actually write it as if you're writing to communicate to your own or someone else's heart what happened to that little boy, what happened to that little girl. And if you allow yourself that exercise, I think you will find through this process that you'll have more of a heart open to hearing what God has to speak. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part series from the Restoration of the Heart Conference featuring Dr. Dan Allender and myself, John Eldridge. If you are interested in the full conference, which I hope you are because it's killer, you can get the video and the audio on a flash drive by visiting RansomedHeart.com.